ahead and turn in your Bible with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 4, and we'll be in verses 17 through 26 today. And as you turn there, I want you to ponder this question, okay? How are we to respond when sin abounds? How are we to respond when sin abounds? Or to put it another way, what do we do when the character and the promises of God seem to be submerged within the black sea of human sin? When does, when does sin nullify the promises of God? What do we, how do we respond when sin abounds? As we look out at the prevalence of sin in our culture or even in our churches oftentimes, at what point do we emotionally throw up our hands and say with the scoffer of Psalm 42, where is your God? Or with the fool in his heart of Psalm 14, there is no God. Or what about even within ourselves? What about within ourselves? When our personal sin is so loud that we, we, we struggle to hear the voice of God in his, in his word. The voice of God seems muffled under layer after layer of accusation from the enemy, like, like God is trying to get your attention from a different zip code. How are we to understand the promises of God in Christ to us as Christians when we don't see and we don't feel the truth of them, when we don't see the fulfillment of them? What do we do when God's word God's promises seem to be written for somebody else, somebody, somebody with sin that's not quite like yours. At what point does human sin, at what point does your sin reach such a point that God's promises not only lose their sweetness to your heart, but also their, their certainty to you, your, your understanding of their certainty of happening? How do these two things interact? The sin of man and the promise of God. How do these two things interact? How do we respond when sin abounds? That's what our passage today is all about in Genesis chapter 4. And as we enter into the second half of chapter 4, before I read our passage today, it's, in, it's important to remember where we're at in the story. So Adam and Eve, they've been driven out from the garden, right, as a result of their disobedience, but God didn't send them out without a promise, did he? He sent them out with the promise that one day there would come a serpent-crushing seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. But how long until that offspring arrives? No one knows other than God at this point. So from this point on in the book of Genesis, and really for the entire rest of the biblical narrative, That's what we're looking for. We're looking for this serpent-crushing seed of the woman that's to come. So Adam and Eve, they're certainly anticipating this promise fulfillment from God. So they're outside of the garden, but they hold within their hearts and within their minds this promise from God of the serpent-crushing seed of the woman. So I imagine when they had their first two sons, Cain and Abel, right, that they were brimming with excitement. Could one of these two boys be the serpent-crushing seed of the woman that the Lord had promised? But after only a few short years, the darkness of this post-garden world just continues to get darker, doesn't it? it quickly, it's quickly made abundantly clear that neither of these two sons will be the, ones, will be the one that, cru- that crushed the head of the serpent, right? Abel Obviously, he's not the one because he is now dead, killed by his brother. And Cain, he's clearly not going to be the one who crushes the head of the serpent because he, as we saw last week, he was sent away from God, by God, as a result of his sin, right? That's what we saw last week. So this is where we find ourselves in today's text. The first humans are exiled from the garden. Abel's blood is in the ground. Cain is sent away from God. So where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? Most of our text today, as we'll see, traces the line and the descendants of our first murderer, Cain. 
And as we, as we look at and examine the succession of humanity from Cain, what we see today will frighten us, or at least it really should. As, as sin spreads, we'll observe that things go from very bad to much worse. How are we to respond when sin abounds? How do sin and promise relate to each other? Our text today will answer those questions for us. So join me in Genesis chapter four, verses 17 through 26. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujel, and Mahujel fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And to Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. I'm excited to preach this passage this morning to you all. At surface level, it might not seem like much more is happening here than just a painful genealogy with some random bits of information thrown in. And in fact, when I, pa- when I texted a uh, former pastor friend of mine earlier this week about what my passage of scripture that I was preaching on was, he replied, and I quote, what happened? Did you draw the short straw? <laughs> and even last week as Mark was preaching on the dark but riveting story of Cain and Abel, my dear wife Claire leaned over to me and said, Why didn't you choose this passage? (laughs) But as we'll see, this passage today is just as much for us. There's so much more to be learned from our text today than we we might expect at first glance. So hopefully by the end, this opaque passage will have opened up to us and, and we'll receive what the Lord has for us. And just as a prefatory side note, this is one of the many reasons why I think through preaching, why, why I think preaching through books of the Bible is just so valuable and so important. Part of what we call expository preaching. I mean, if these verses weren't next in line to be preached this week, but I was next up to preach and I could choose whatever I wanted to preach from, my mind probably wouldn't jump to, oh, preach from the wicked line of Cain and Lamech. I wouldn't, that's not where my mind would go initially. But this is where, this is where the Lord has us this morning as we're preaching through the book of Genesis and I'm grateful for it. I'm grateful for it because in this passage today, the Lord will instruct us how we are to understand the pervasiveness of sin in relation to the promises of God. And so here's what I believe this passage of scripture was meant, was meant to do for the original readers thousands of years ago and also for us today. The Lord will show us through this passage that he'll show us what happens when sin increases, okay? He'll show us what happens when sin increases. That's what we're observing here in Genesis chapter four. As we go through our text, we'll observe at least five things that happen as sin 
increase here in Genesis chapter four. We'll discover five answers that are each simultaneously true. Even though some of them might seem paradoxical to each other, each of them will be seen to be simultaneously true from the word of God here this morning. So as we get into our text today, we'll see that the first thing that happens as sin abounds, the first thing that happens as sin increases is that self-importance abounds. First thing we see is that self-importance abounds. Look at verse 17 again with me. It says, Cain knew his wife and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So in verse 17, Cain is now, he's remember, he's away from the presence of the Lord because of his murdering of his brother. He's cursed to be a, a fugitive and wanderer on the earth as God tells him in verse 12. But interestingly, and maybe not surprisingly based on what we know about Cain thus far, what does Cain do just after God sends him, sends him away to be a wanderer and a fugitive on the earth? We see here that he settles down and builds a city. So the defiance of Cain against God continues. Cain is increasingly looking more like the seed of the serpent than the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent, isn't he? And not only does he build a city against the decree of God that he's to be a wanderer, but he also, what's he do? He names this first city after the name of his first son, Enoch. Now this, this might not seem like a huge deal to us today who live in a world with states and cities and streets named after people to honor them. But make no mistake that this act of naming this first city after his son is meant to be understood, even literarily here in this passage, as an additional act of defiance by Cain against the Lord. Even if we just look at the first verse of our passage today and compare it with the last verse of our passage today, so we just read, Cain called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. Contrast that with verse 26 here, where Moses writes of Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. The same words here. You see that? We'll see, that the, con- we'll see the contrast of Cain and Enosh more clearly when we get to Enosh. But for now, it's important to see that while one person pridefully names a city after his son, calls a city after the name of his son. Another is calling upon the name of the Lord. Now, what I'm not doing, I'm not making an absolute judgment on whether or not places should be named after people, to be clear. But in this text, God seems to be communicating to the reader that Cain's naming of the city after Enoch is a prideful, high-handed, continued rebellion by Cain against the Lord. And against the Lord who had created him and had just shown him mercy versus prior, as we saw last week. So Cain, he wants to build a city independent of God. And doesn't this sound a lot like another group of people that we're going to meet a little bit later in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, who say... Let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves in the Tower of Babel. Or Psalm 49. Psalm 49 seems like it could have been written with Cain in mind here, especially verses 10 to 12. Psalm 49 says, For he, meaning the wicked person, sees that even the wise die, the fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling places to all generations, though they called lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. So Cain, he can defiantly name this city after his son. He can call that land by his own name, to use the language of the psalm, but he too will die And his grave is his home forever, isn't it? When sin increases, self-importance abounds. This first murderer, Cain, he kills his own brother. After God shows him mercy and 
rather than killing him in return, sends him on his way, Cain defiantly builds a city. And when he defiantly builds the city, he names the city after not the name of the Lord God, but after the name of his own son. Sin has a way of turning us inward, doesn't it? To obsess over self. To desire the greatness of our name over the greatness even of the Lord's name. And whether you consciously recognize it or not, our internal dialogue can look more often like, what do they think, rather than what does God think? Our hearts can look a lot like Cain's as we live our lives saying in our hearts, I must increase even if everything else has to decrease. When sin increases, self-importance abounds. I don't even need to give any more examples of this for you to recognize this tendency in your heart, do I? I trust that I'm not the only one that feels the relentless tug of sin toward self-importance, always looking inward and rarely looking upward. So that's the first thing that we observe that happens as sin spreads. But unfortunately, that is not all that we observe that happens. A few generations later, we meet a man here named Lamech. And Lamech, he is the seventh generation of Adam through Cain. So seven generations from Adam to Lamech. So each generation of Cain comes and goes, and with each generation, wickedness continues to increase until we meet Lamech here. And as the seventh generation of Adam through Cain, he, Lamech here, he's, he's set forth as sort of the completion or the, the fullness of the wickedness of sin in the line of Cain. And in him, in, ver, in verses 18 to 19, we observe a second thing that happens as sin increases. And that is that marriage is redefined. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me again. To Enoch was born Irad, and Irad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methushel, and Methushel fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, and the name of the other, Zillah. And so just like that, we meet the first polygamist in human history. God may have just said in chapter 2, that a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his, wife, to his wife, but Lamech, he wants both Ada and Zillah. And who's God to stop him if, if he wants both of these women as his wives? So for him, it's a man shall leave his father and, mo- father and mother and hold fast to his wives. Now, to be clear, the text itself doesn't explicitly mention this is a sin of Lamech, but given the purpose of this passage, before us today to being to highlight the wickedness of Cain and the fullness of it in the person of Lamech. It would be hard to understand this mention of two wives as anything less than an indictment against him. And in fact, this is really how the entire rest of the Old Testament treats the topic of polygamy, isn't it? Think of Abraham and Esau and Jacob. Polygamy certainly isn't uncommon in Genesis. But rather than explicitly condemning the practice, Moses usually lets the narrative speak for itself. And the narrative usually shouts loud and clear that polygamy results in disastrous consequences, in painful consequences. So in Lamech, we see that as sin increases, marriage is redefined. And as we we find ourselves in the same world as Lamech, today, just many generations later, isn't this just as apparent to us today? It didn't take but seven generations from Adam to Lamech for Lamech to make the first attempt at redefining what the Lord instituted in marriage. And after who knows how many generations from Lamech to us today, doesn't the same thing still happen? The only difference is that the spiral of sin didn't stop with polygamy, did it? Now it's same-sex marriage, polyamory, 
and who knows what else, things that I'm hopefully blissfully unaware of. But my point in drawing attention to this is not to bemoan the degradation of marriage that we observe, but my point is that we should not be surprised by any of this. As sin increases, marriage is redefined. This isn't a result of increasing sophistication or humanity progressing toward a, to, toward a more valuable uh, end. But when marriage is defined as anything other than what God defines it as, the union between one man and one woman, you can be sure that sin is behind it. And Lamech here, the first polygamist, proves that to us. So with Lamech, the spiral of sin in Cain's line, we're observing it continue. Things are getting darker and darker, worse and worse. And we'll come back to Lamech in a little bit. But surprisingly here, the text actually makes mention of his children before coming back to Lamech. So from Lamech's two wives come three sons and one daughter that we, that we see here in verses 20 to 22. Now, before we read, what would we expect to see here? As we see the spiral of sin continue, we, we saw that as sin increases, self-importance abounds, and as sin increases, marriage is redefined. So when we get to Lamech's sons, we would expect to see their own unique contribution to the spiral of sin. But what we observe here actually surprises us. So read verses 20 to 22 with me again, and we'll see that what we, what we see here is that even as sin increases, God's common grace continues. Verses 20 to 22 say, Ada bore Jabel. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubalcane. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubalcane was Naamah. Now, the Bible is filled with great name ideas for future parents. And here are, here are three names here in Genesis 4. Just tuck that away in your mind. If you ever find yourself pregnant with triplets, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubalcane. It, a great Set a great name for a set of beautiful triplets someday in this church. But in all seriousness, even though these three men, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal Cain, are from the wicked line of Cain, that's what we're meant to understand this as, God is still using them here to pioneer some of the most important civilizational advancements in all of human history. So Jabel, he's what? He's the father of, or that means he's the one who began the work of, keeping livestock. And Jubal, he was the father of those who play the lyre and the pipe. And Tubal-Cain forged bronze and iron. Three very important things. Animal husbandry, the arts, metallurgy. I won't, and I won't, get, I won't get into what each of their names mean individually, but I do think it's important to note that each of their names, they carry joyful, happy, exciting meanings, as does their sister's name, Naamah. So these are three guys. This is a family who their names represent a prosperous, blissful people. So animal husband, husbandry, music, metallurgy, all these can be surprisingly traced back to Lamech and even more surprisingly back to the first murderer, Cain. So even as sin increases in the world, especially in the line of Cain, God's kindness, we observe here, continues to be poured out even on the wicked. And that's what I mean by common grace. Sam Storms, he helpfully explains this idea of common grace. And he says that common grace is every favor falling short of salvation, which this undeserving and sin-cursed world enjoys at the hand of God. This includes the delay of wrath, the mitigation of our sin natures, natural events that lead to prosperity, and here for our passage today, and all gifts that humans use and enjoy naturally. So that's what I mean by common grace. It's God's undeserved blessings poured out even on, the, even on those who would never acknowledge 
these things as coming from the hand of God. And again, not because of any inherent level of genius within, within them, not, not, anything in Jabel, not anything in Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal-Cain, but because of God's amazing grace, even to those who want nothing to do with him. So here is Cain's family tree set forth as the, the, the line of the spread of wickedness throughout the earth that started with Cain's murder of his brother, his disobedient founding of the city, and his prideful naming of it. And here are three of his descendants that seem to be living high on the hog. They seem to be living the good life. These, are, these three sons, they sort, of, they sort of shatter our picture of a simple, depressing depravity that we think ought to come from despising the Lord. Where does sin sometimes lead? Surprisingly, sometimes to prosperity, at least for a little while, right? If I was writing Genesis, I probably would have left out these three. I would have stuck to Lamech, or at least made some mention of some terrible things that they did too. But as we observe the spiral of sin here in Genesis 4, we also observe the common grace of God continuing. And we should thank God for that. And these, these three sons in the midst of the wicked spread of sin remind me of an old story about a farmer who one season he wanted to set out to prove to his town that there was no God. So every Sunday he would go out to his field, he'd work his field, he'd directly challenge God that if he was displeased with him to send disease, to send drought, Every Sunday, he would go out, work his field, challenge God. But Sunday after Sunday, he'd go out, he'd work his field, he'd challenge God. Sunday after Sunday, nothing happened. The rain continued to fall, and the corn continued to grow. And in October, the farmer gathered a healthy, a healthy harvest. And so in his wicked exultation, the farmer, he writes to the local newspaper, and he explains uh, this, this ploy that he had this, this season to work his field every day on the, every, every Lord's Day and to challenge God in the process and how he gathered a, a healthy harvest and with no sign of any sort of God's displeasure with him. And so the editor of the paper, he published this farmer's letter in the paper, but he added one simple yet profound comment. He wrote, our friend has forgotten one thing. God does not settle his accounts in October. The rain on the farmer's crops is not, is not a sign of God's indifference toward this defiant farmer. And civil, civilizational advancements here in Genesis 4 from the sons of Lamech aren't meant to show that God is actually pleased with the line of Cain and therefore he blessed them. No, it's meant to show that even toward those who want nothing to do with him, God still continues to pour out his blessing on them. Even toward those who live in rejection of him, God still extends grace to them. And I think that these three sons carry with them a very significant word of warning to anyone here today who who has not trusted in Christ for forgiveness of their sins. And you might, you might look at your life and you might be happy. You might be happy with how things are going. You might make good money. You might have a lot of friends. You might have a family who you love dearly. And those are all good things. They all come from God and should be recognized as such. But if you are not in Christ, then your sins are not covered by him. They're not forgiven by Christ, and you will one day have to, have to pay for those sins yourself. In Romans chapter two, it says, or do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Don't take the riches of God's kindness for granted. Let his kindness lead you to repentance, to turning from your sin to Christ. 
And even these three sons in the wicked family tree of Cain receive good things from God. Even as sin increases, God's common grace continues. And for those in Christ, for all of us here today, this might, all, this might also serve as a helpful reminder to us that even as a society might progress technologically or civilizationally, it might also simultaneously digress morally, right? Even as, anim- even as animal husbandry and the arts and metal forging come into existence, the spiral of sin in Genesis 4 continues. And in our day, even in the day of AI and blockchain and crypto, as they come into existence, we know that they cannot deliver us from the effects of sin. They cannot mitigate the effects of sin. There never has been and never will be a technology sophisticated enough or a society refined enough to free us from the stain of sin. We need a savior for that, don't we? And praise God, that's what we have in Jesus Christ. As sin spreads in Genesis, and today, not only does self-importance abound and marriage gets redefined, but also, praise the Lord, God's common grace also continues on. Now, unfortunately, as we move from Lamech's sons in the passage back to Lamech, we're gonna be back to negative things for a second. So as we turn to verses 23 and 24, we observe something else that happens as sin spreads. We see that violence intensifies. And here, unfortunately, we're back with our buddy Lamech, and we learn some more things about him here that make it clear that he is not necessarily a role model for our children. Not only is he the pioneer of polygamy, but he also, here we'll see, prides himself on some pretty terrible things. So read verses 23 and 24 again with me, and this is the dark point of our passage today. Hear, hear, the, hear the wickedness of these words. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now, historically, this poem by Lamech has been called the Song of the Sword, which it's not hard to understand why it's been called that. And who knows, maybe, maybe this song was sung to a tune played on the pipe by his son Jubal, who, who, who created uh, pipe music. So he calls his wives to him, and he brags to them about what? What's he bragged to his wives about? his vengeful violence. He says, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. Do you see the spiral of sin continuing? It's not, it's not a line of sin continuing, but it's a spiral of sin continuing into the seventh generation here with Lamech. What was the first sin of humanity outside the garden by Cain that we saw last week? It was murder, right? And what did Cain do after he killed his brother. He tried to play it off. He, he, tried to, he tried to get away with it. He tried to cover it up. But what does Cain's great-great-great-grandson here have to say about his murder of even a young boy? He boasts about it. He brags about it. He prides himself on it. For even a wound, he will kill. For even a strike, Lamech will slaughter. And even a boy could be his victim. Now, That mindset didn't die with Lamech, did it? Isn't it self-evident that even as sin has continued on in the world, so has has this boastful, violent mindset? And it makes me think of something that Joseph Stalin is quoted as having said. He said that death is the solution to all problems. No man, no problem. The mindset of Lamech isn't just an ancient problem. As sin spreads here in Genesis 4 and as sin spreads today, violence intensifies. And if Lamech's bragging about killing a boy 
isn't bad enough. Look what he says after that. He says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Now, what is he, what's he talking about? Look back to verse 15. Actually, start at verse 14. So after Cain kills Abel, and the Lord tells him what his punishment will be, Cain says, Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord, this is the Lord speaking, said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. So what's Lamech saying here? Essentially, he's saying, if God's protection of Cain was so much, then my protection of myself will be seven times that. Or to put it another way, one commentator, he says that unlike his ancestor, Cain, several generations earlier, who felt the desperate need of divine protection, Lamech, he feels like he's his own security. He can handle any difficulty or mistreatment quite adequately by, by himself. If Cain is avenged only sevenfold, Lamech will be avenged 77-fold. And just as an aside, don't we hear an echo of his of this vindictive attitude of Lamech being corrected by Jesus in Matthew 18, 21 and 22, when Peter comes to Jesus and asks him, how many times must I forgive my brother who sins against me? As many as seven times? But Jesus said to him, I don't say to you seven times, but 77 times. So in contrast to Lamech's quick temper to revenge, our Lord calls us to be a people quick to forgive. Not, not people to seek vengeance seven times over, but forgiveness 77 times over. So as sin spreads, violence intensifies. And we could even say, based on Lamech, that it intensifies with great arrogance as well. So the picture of this post-garden world is bleak. As Cain's descendants come into the world, they move the needle of sin more and more and more. As sin spreads, as sin extends throughout the earth in the line of Cain, self-importance abounds. We see that in Cain's naming of the city after Enoch. As sin spreads, marriage is redefined. We saw that with the first polygamist, Lamech. As sin spreads, God's common grace praise the Lord, continues. We see that in the industrious sons of Lamech. And as sin spreads, violence intensifies. And we learn that from Lamech's Song of the Sword. Now, that's only four things that we observe that happen as sin increases. And if you remember, I said that there were five things that we observe here as sin, in, as sin spreads. And praise God that there is a fifth thing that we observe in this passage today that's true about the spread of sin in Genesis 4 and that's true even for us today. And that is this, that as sin spreads, the promise of God endures. As sin spreads, the promise of God endures. And we see this in the conclusion to our passage in verses 25 to 26. Look there again with me. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son, and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, we don't know exactly when in the genealogy of verses 17 to 24 that we just looked at that the events of these two verses here happen, but they're meant to be understood as a direct contrast, a direct contrast between these two lines, a, a contrast to the direction that the line of Cain is headed. So even as the spiral of sin 
is continuing in the line of Cain, even as wickedness is continuing to increase, God is doing something here. He is creating another line. He's creating another family tree. And remember what Adam and Eve are waiting for. Remember what promise they hold in their hearts as they exit the garden. They're waiting for this promised offspring or seed of the woman who will come and crush the head of the serpent, right? And look at what Eve says about Seth when he's born. She says, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. And we haven't seen that word offspring since chapter three of Genesis when God made his promise to Adam and Eve that an offspring would come who would crush the serpent. So even in the midst of this increasingly sinful and wicked post-garden world, God is preparing the fulfillment of his promise. Even as we read about Cain and Enoch and Lamech, even as these things are progressing, God is preparing the fulfillment of his promise here. And we'll get a closer look at where this new and better genealogy through Seth leads next week as we look at chapter five, but we do get a hope-filled glimpse here at the vast difference between the line of Cain and the line of Seth here in our passage today as Moses tells us about Seth's son, Enosh, in verse 26. So about Enosh, Moses writes, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, what a difference from the family who calls cities after their own name. What a difference from the family who brags about, brags about vengeful murder. While Cain's line might have pioneered the arts, Seth's line pioneered worship. While Cain's line might have included the first metal forgers, Seth's line includes the first worshipers of Yahweh. Now, the promise isn't fulfilled quite yet. That's obvious. The serpent crusher isn't quite here yet in Genesis 4. But in these two verses, the Lord reminds us that even as sin increases, even as sin spreads and deepens and darkens, the promise of God endures. Now, what does this passage show us about how sin and promise relate to each other? What does it teach us about how we are to respond when we see sin abound? Here's what I think it teaches us. And here's how I would sum up the point of this entire passage. I would say that the Lord is teaching us that in the midst of an increasingly sin-stained world, Christians can confidently trust the plan and promises of God. Amen? In the midst of an increasingly sin-stained world, Christians can confidently trust the plan and promises of God. Even as sin, here in Genesis 4, seemed to threaten the fulfillment of, a, of the promise of a serpent-crushing seed of the woman, God reminds us here that no amount of human sin is ever able to thwart his sovereign purposes. If there was ever something to be sure about, that's it. No amount of human sin is ever able to thwart the sovereign purposes of God. Every word of God proves true, as Proverbs 30 tells us. Or as Psalm 18 tells us, the word of the Lord proves true. And we today, as we sit here today, have even more reason for confidence in that statement than Adam and Eve had here to believe that the Lord would fulfill his promise. More reason than Seth, more reason than Enosh to trust in the plan and promises of God, even in the midst of an increasingly sin-stained world. 
And that's because we live on the other side of the fulfillment of this promise here in Genesis. It's from this Seth and this Enosh that we read about in our passage today that we meet the one who we, know, who we now know as the serpent crusher. In Luke chapter three, as Luke traces the genealogy of Jesus Christ, he traces him all the way back In verses 37 to 38 of chapter 3, he says, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, or Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. As Christians, we live in so much more fulfillment than promise, don't we? But it doesn't always feel that way. There's certainly still promise that we are trusting God to fulfill. But we live in so much more fulfillment than promise. In Jesus Christ, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 1, he says, all the promises of God find their yes in him. So for those in Christ, for those whose sins have been forgiven by him in his death, in your place, you can confidently trust the plan and the promises of God even in the midst of an increasingly sin-stained world. Now, my question for you then, and my question for me, honestly, is what promises of God might you be doubting, or maybe believing, but barely, with a good bit of skepticism mixed in. When he says, when Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, Hebrews 13, do you believe it? Know that if you are in Christ, your sinful doubt of that promise cannot forfeit the certainty of its truth. Or when he says, when Jesus says that he gives eternal life and that no one can snatch his own out of his hand. John 10, do you believe it? Is that sweet to you? Is that truth sweet to you? Is that promise sweet to your heart? Or when Jesus calls the church his bride, and promises that he will purify her. Do you believe that? Or do you see her imperfections and allow those to dominate your understanding of who she is? Is she experientially to you Jesus' beloved bride? Or when he promises to finish the work of salvation that he began in you. Do you believe it? Even when your battle with sin rages within, even when you're tempted to despair, do you believe the promise of God even as sin abounds in your own heart? Or maybe most fitting to our passage today, when Jesus says that he will return for his own, Luke 12, Yet you look out at the world and see so much more wickedness than holiness, so much more sin than righteousness, so much more promise, it seems, than fulfillment sometimes. Do you doubt his words? Do you believe that even in the midst of an increasingly sin-stained world, that you can have confidence in the plan and promises of God in his word? The song that we will close with here in a moment resonates with that wrestling that we might have as we live in faith in a dark world expecting the fulfillment of the promises of God that come through Christ. The song begins and it says, though the dark is overwhelming and the brightest lights grow dim 
though the word of God is trampled on by foolish men. Though the wicked never stumble and abound in every place, we will all be humbled when we see your face. Even in the darkness, even with the prevalence of sin around us and even within us, still even as followers of Christ, we can trust the plan and the promises of God. There is no amount of human sin that can ever annul the promises of God to his children in Christ. We get a glimpse of that sweet truth here in Genesis, even in this genealogy of Cain and Seth, but we see that truth fully in the face of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen? Pray with me. Father God, we come to you as a people so thankful for your grace poured out on us. God, we recognize ourselves in this passage today in Genesis 4. We recognize that if it weren't for your grace poured out on us, we, like Cain, like Enoch, like Lamech, would be pursuing our own self-importance. We would be given over to our own lusts for power or revenge. But God, you promised the serpent-crushing seed, and we see here in Genesis 4 the first glimpses of the fulfillment of that promise. And God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who has come, who has crushed the serpent, and in whom we have victory as your children. God, I ask that as we live with faith in the midst of a dark world and as we struggle with sin ourselves, we ask that you would sustain us, that you would give us faith to trust in your promises. Lord, would you drive them deep into our hearts? Would you give us a love for your word as we walk in faith in the midst of a dark world? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your church, that we can gather, that we can sing praises to your name, and that we can sit under the authority of your word. God, I ask that you would empower our response of praise by your spirit now, Lord, that you would allow us to lift up your name, that we would call upon the name of the Lord, like we read here, in faith, and that you would be pleased in our doing so. We pray these things in Christ's holy and precious name. Amen.